Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on March 2nd, 2023. Now, markets are digesting the latest economic data and recalibrating their expectations for their Federal Reserve's possible policy reaction. We will find out a lot more at the next FOMC meeting on March 21st-22nd, when we will also get an update to this summary of economic projections. Helping us to explain this environment from a portfolio management perspective is Karthik Narayanan, a managing director and head of our securitized sector team. In his role, Karthik oversees the groups responsible for asset-backed securities, agency and non-agency residential and commercial mortgage-backed securities, and CLO investments. ABS and structured credit are an important area of focus for many of our portfolio strategies, and there's a lot going on in his sector, so his visit is especially timely. Uh, but first, we're going to get an update on the macroeconomic backdrop from our U.S. economist, Matt Bush. Matt, the floor is yours. Thanks, Jay. Recent U.S. economic data has added to signs that the economy is accelerating after a winter lull and that aggregate demand is running too hot to bring inflation down to the Fed's 2% target. The January personal income and spending report was the best example of this, with consumer spending up 1.8% unannualized over the month, with spending on both goods and services running strong. Personal income also showed a solid increase with strong labor income, a big boost from Social Security cost of living adjustments, and a resetting of tax brackets, all driving higher disposable income. This strong income and spending continues to fuel higher than expected inflation, with the core PCE deflator rising at a 7.1% annualized pace over the month of January. This rebounded inflation, together with revisions to the past several months, now shows a notably different trajectory for inflation, with underlying measures that the Fed is looking at, like trim mean or core services excluding housing, basically moving sideways over the past few months around a 5% annualized rate whereas previously it looked like it was cooling off and falling below 4%. There are a number of caveats that go along with all the strong January data that we've seen recently, whether it's the strong spending numbers, jobs numbers, or inflation numbers. We've had an unusually warm winter, which may have helped services and construction activity continue on longer than normal. Seasonal shopping patterns have also shifted, and COVID disruptions from prior winters make seasonally adjusting the January numbers difficult. And there are a lot of one-off effects in January to start the year, like cost of living adjustments and businesses doing annual price resetting. So it's important not to overreact to one month of data. But given the breadth and magnitude of the strong data that we've seen, it's clear there is still more work for the Fed to do to cool down the economy. And we've seen that reflected in a number of recent Fed speeches, where speakers acknowledged the job is far from over, a few floated even returning to a pace of 50 basis point hikes, and they all made clear that they will keep hiking until inflation is convincingly heading back toward target. The upcoming March Fed meeting will see updated economic projections, and their dot plot of interest rate projections is likely to see a move higher in the terminal rate from its current level of 5.1%. Touching on the overseas data for a minute, in Europe the data is showing an even more drastic turnaround, 
with a number of consumer and business sentiment surveys rapidly improving as an energy shock-induced recession looks less likely. The Eurozone composite PMI for February was well above expectations at 52.3, led by strength in the services sector. While that's good news in the near term, it adds pressure on the ECB to continue hiking rates, and we think these hikes will eventually push the European economy into recession as tight credit weighs on consumer spending and business investment. In Japan, we saw inflation continue to rise, with their measure of core inflation rising to 4.2% year-over-year, the fastest rate since 1981. More importantly for global markets, we heard the first public remarks from the incoming Bank of Japan governor last week, where in a testimony to Parliament he endorsed continued monetary easing and calmed fears of an imminent end to the yield curve control policy. And in China, February PMIs came in hotter than expected, with both manufacturing and services activity showing the economy recovering strongly as COVID infections waned last month. Looking forward, we expect only a modest recovery in China this year, as the end of COVID restrictions is somewhat offset by limited government stimulus and ongoing geopolitical tensions with the United States. Back over to you, Jay. Thanks, Matt. Joining us now is Karthik Narayanan, head of Securitized for Guggenheim Investments. Karthik, welcome back, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jay. Glad to be here. Now, Karthik, I always like to set the foundation for our conversations by asking for a primer on structured credit. What are the basic characteristics and investment considerations of the sector? Sure. So first off, structured credit is a fixed income credit market. So when we say credit, a large part of the investment thesis and the diligence and research work that investors need to do on any credit market, whether it's structured credit or corporate credit, is around the risk that you actually get your money back when it's contractually stated to happen. In the corporate bond market, repayment of the debt is promised by an operating company, and typically there's not a pledge of assets. That's called unsecured debt. In contrast, structured credit market, which is a $3 trillion market, it's not linked to any promise of an operating company. It's instead bonds are repaid based on contractual cash flows as a first layer of repayment. And then as a second layer of repayment, there could be a pledge of assets. Now, it may sound a little abstract, but it's actually, these deals are backed by very common assets. So for example, residential mortgages, that might be a type of collateral in structured credit, commercial mortgages, leases on shipping containers, auto loans. So all this large variety of commercial and consumer debt or contracts are the source of repayment for structured credit. So we might talk about structured credit as one asset class, but the real hallmark of it is that it's very diversified by collateral. So for example, the CLO market, which is one of the areas of structured credit, you have corporate loans and a big pool of them backing your deal. You have residential mortgages. You may have a big diverse pool of mortgages distributed all around the country. And so those are sort of the hallmark characteristics of structured credit. In terms of investment considerations, you can really line that up into three areas. One is analysis of the collateral. Two is analysis of the structure. And the three is the servicer or other key parties such as collateral manager. We can get into that in more detail, but although this market is very big and diverse and each of the structures and the individual subsectors vary a lot, you can kind of align your thinking around those three pillars that investors need to consider when they look at risk and return in the sector. So we're going to get into the, the different sectors within structured credit uh, a little bit later. But uh, we heard on last week's Macro Markets episode with Steve Brown, our CIO for Total Return and Macro Strategies, 
that he is seeing relative value in structured credit versus corporate credit. In general, what is driving this perception right now? That's right, Jay. Our view is that in the current market, structured credit offers both good absolute and historical value, as well as relative value You know, when you compare to corporates as, as Steve did. Now, first, on an absolute and historical basis, we just look at the simple metric of yield in structured credit. Now, the good thing for fixed income investors, when you think about yield, is if you hold a bond to maturity and you don't have any defaults, you will earn the yield. So when we look at where we are in the market after the correction of 2022, yields are much higher than they've been in the last 15 years. So this is what I mean when I say historical uh, value. So for example, just to, to motivate this point a little more, if we look at a specific asset-backed securities submarket, such as whole business securitization, now these are triple B rated deals or investment grade rated deals backed by franchise royalties, maybe on restaurants, maybe in other non-restaurant type finance franchise businesses. These are trading right now in the 5.8 to 6.5% yield area. Okay, now how does that compare in a historical basis for on my first point about historical value? If you just go back to 2021, though, when the market had started rebounding in earnest from the pullback of COVID, these were trading in the 25 to 3% yield area. So the risk in these securities is probably lower than it was back then because we have a little more clarity on the economy. And a lot of these businesses have grown in the subsequent two years, but the yields are almost double. So just the, the total absolute level of income investors can earn on these is much better than it was. You take a, another example in AAA rated mortgage-backed securities. You know Those are trading in the 6% area now. Again, first priority AAA rated security, so very low risk of principal loss on a hold to maturity basis. We go back to 2021, these are trading around 2% yield. So there's a massive and painful revaluation that happened in 2022. And if you're an investor coming into the market today, you can avail yourself of the opportunities that that dislocation has created. So that's absolute value. The other point Steve made was on relative value. And on that, we can step back and think about how structured credit works. Part of the reason these excess yields exist in structured credit is because it's a small market, it's complicated, and not as many institutional investors follow it. It tends to be dominated by perhaps 15 or 20 institutional investors that probably speak for two-thirds of the trading activity in the market. So it's kind of a specialty market, and part of that means that the complexity premium exists. When we think about relative value, we can kind of go around and, and see what that looks like now when we compare it to liquid credit and corporate bonds. So take the example of first priority AAA rated CLOs. So these are AAA rated floating rate, first priority tranches off of CLO deals that are themselves backed by a 200 plus obligor pool of corporate bank loans. These are trading about at a 1% higher yield than single A, so lower rated investment grade corporate bonds. Now the average over the long term is much lower than that. So in a normalized market, CLO AAAs trade 30 to 50 basis points or 0.3 to 0.5% higher yield than corporate bonds. But right now it's a full 1% higher. Similarly, if we look at AAA rated residential mortgage-backed securities that are not government guaranteed or the so-called private label RMBS market, historically those AAA first priority RMBS trade about 0.2% higher yield than single A corporate. So you're going up in rating and also increasing yield. And on average, the credit spread differential is 0.2%. Right now it's closer to 1.2%. So there is an elevated premium 
that still exists in this market. And it tends to follow the liquid credit market somewhat slowly in retracing. And even if an investor wants to take a little bit more risk than the examples I've given of the first priority structured credit tranches and goes and investors go to say a single A tranche, if we're talking about corporate CLOs or even commercial mortgage-backed CLOs, those are trading closer to 8%. So what, what do you think accounts for this larger than usual disparity between similarly rated structured and corporate credit? I mean, it sounds attractive, but why is it happening right now? You know, I think a lot of it is due to investor sponsorship. There's less sponsorship in structured credit. And with the volatility that we saw last year and that we're seeing now here, sitting sitting here in late February, early March, structured credit and its thinner investor base is going to take longer to normalize. And while that slow normalization process is going on, there's some incremental yield and perhaps even price appreciation, but really on a whole to maturity basis, there's some incremental yield there. But so we think Really, it's about market sponsorship because even the supply picture in structured credit is very light. There's not a lot of new issuance being created. It's just a slow repricing process in a somewhat volatile overall macro market right now. Now, you mentioned sponsorship. By that, you mean, again, like you mentioned, institutional investors who are interested in this as, a, as an asset class. Would you count Guggenheim as one of those major sponsors of the market? Yes, I, I, I definitely would. And I think if you surveyed our Wall Street counterparties, they would say the same thing. And that's important, not because we're going to go and make every investment and buy every deal, but because we're constantly screening for ideas, we're screening for risks, we're screening for opportunities, and, and we're having dialogue whether or not that dialogue consummates and results in a trade with dealers. And that information is valuable to them as well, even if there's not actually a trade involved. So we are part of this ecosystem, and, and it's an important area for us to be involved with in varying degrees over time as risk and opportunity by the way, if, if anyone is interested in learning more about this, they can go to GuggenheimInvestments.com and look up the ABCs of ABS and understanding CLOs. So, Karthik, let's go through a, a high-level round trip, if you will, of market conditions uh, among the different securitized products that are out there. And let's start with uh, residential mortgage-backed securities. Residential mortgage-backed securities are RMBS, specifically the credit RMBS. So this is not the government agency part of the market, but the, the private label, non-government part of the market. This is one of our favorite places to be right now. So again, just to recap, these are pools of loans that are not backed by the government, like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, those are agency guaranteed mortgages. But these are pools of loans that are issued in an ABS structure where there's senior, mezzanine, and junior tranches of different ratings. So this is one of our favorite places to be right now. And just as a brief walk down you know, the history, 2021, we had low mortgage rates. 2022, after the Fed pivot in November 21, we had much higher mortgage rates that put a damper on mortgage creation. So far fewer people were interested in taking out mortgages to purchase homes or to refinance their existing mortgages because rates had backed up and increased. At the same time, when money managers who are actively involved in all of structured products and fixed income generally were suffering outflows that formed a bad supply-demand dynamic. Now, the other piece that's a little bit inside baseball for mortgages, and, and listeners who are familiar with the mortgage market are familiar with this concept, but there's this concept of prepayments in mortgages where how fast a pool of mortgages pays back is a function of the level of mortgage rates relative to the level of mortgage rates in that pool. So the level of rates in the market relative to the rates that are in the loans in the pool. 
And as mortgage rates increased, the speed of prepayments slowed down. Now, what does that mean? It means investors thought they had a three-year bond. Maybe now they actually have a seven or eight-year bond. And it's really what traders in the mortgage market would call a convexity event, where there's this concept of uh, negative convexity, which means in certain asset classes, such as mortgages, when rates go up, the duration increases and the potential mark-to-market losses increase. So that all happened in 2022 and burned a lot of investors. And so the reason I bring all this up is it sort of positions us for where we are today which is spreads had widened significantly. There was too much supply and too little demand. So all of these things sort of intersected at the same time. Now, where are we today? As I mentioned before, this market has rallied to start the year. But if we look back at the normalized relationship between, say, AAA-rated private label mortgages and single A, so it's a lower-rated corporate index, that yield difference or credit spread difference is typically about 0.2% on average in the long term. And it's closer to 1.2% right now. And translating that into a yield standpoint, we're talking about four to five year average maturity, first priority mortgages that are yielding 6% or higher, which is just not something we've seen. So as we look here going forward, the supply in the mortgage market is very low. So that's a good thing from a technical standpoint. These deals and the sort of mortgage credit ecosystem is set up to absorb the cooling we expect to see in the housing market without too much problem. And so the fundamental issues are pretty muted there and spreads are still elevated. So from a technical standpoint, we view it as favorable. Fundamental standpoint, we view it as neutral. And from a valuation standpoint, we view it as attractive. Great, thank you for that. So just again, a a note for listeners, prepayments is essentially when you get your principal back because the, the mortgage borrower has refinanced their mortgage. So let's move on to commercial mortgage-backed securities. So the story here in commercial mortgage-backed securities is much different than the resi market that we just spoke about. This is a market where there are fundamental challenges coming from a lot of different directions. So first off, just as a review, unlike residential mortgages, which are, as as anyone with a mortgage that's listening knows, are 30-year fully amortizing, they pay themselves off after 30 years. Most of the loans in the commercial mortgage space are 10-year maturities and they do not fully amortize. And so what this does is it creates refinancing risk in the commercial mortgage market, which is more similar to the corporate bond market, where if corporate issuer issues a five-year bond, five years from now, they're going to have to come back to the market and borrow money to pay off that bond and issue a new one. So that concept doesn't exist in the residential mortgage market. It does exist in the commercial mortgage market. And if you step back and think about where we've come in the last... 18 months, the interest rate at which owners of commercial properties, uh, the interest rate at which they need to borrow and the coupon that they would pay has increased dramatically. Now, for some properties where the revenues generated by those properties are short-term in nature or indexed to inflation, I think an example of a hotel, once we got past the period of COVID where nobody was traveling, the room rates on hotels can index pretty quickly to the ambient level of prices in, in the economy. Whereas in contrast, something like an office building that has 10-year leases cannot. I mean, there's some rent escalators and things, but uh, the order of magnitude is much smaller than the level of interest rate and inflation increase that we've seen in this paradigm change. So in commercial real estate, there's the haves and have-nots. There are properties that are probably fine and can refinance and aren't going to have any kind of issues around their maturities. 
And there's another class of properties that are going to have issues. And I think investors are struggling mightily right now to figure out what properties are in which of those categories. And, and the way you see that manifesting is just in the total transaction volume in commercial real estate, which, you know, year over year is down about 25%. But, you know, just to start this year, I mean, it's down something like 60%, you know, year to date through February. So investors are kind of collectively scratching their heads and worrying about what some of these properties are going to do when they hit refinancing. So what does that mean for us from a portfolio standpoint? This is not to say that all properties are going to have problems. The market is going to take some time to separate good news from bad news. But really our focus now in commercial real estate is not to be in the business of making pinpoint forecasts about what a property is going to do one, two, three, four, five years from now. Instead, it is to look for parts of capital structures where we are getting paid for complexity risk and not for credit risk. So we're not trying to make pinpoint credit bets um, we're trying to make sure that we have asset coverage through a range of scenarios and looking for where we can harvest excess yields. And, and really right now, that's not a new issue in commercial mortgage-backed securities. It's really in the secondary market, particularly in certain single asset back deals where there's a single hotel property or a single property that's behind the loan, or more commonly, it's in commercial real estate backed CLOs, so CRE CLOs. So these are deals primarily backed by multifamily properties, which again, has this ability to index with inflation and rents over the one year, two year kind of cycles and are lightly transitional. So the, here we're talking about single A to triple A rated first, second, third priority tranches that are yielding north of 7% in many cases. So we think that's a sector where we're getting paid more for the lack of investor sponsorship as opposed to going out and turning up the risk dial on just absolute credit risk and making sort of pinpoint bets on what individual properties will do in the future. Thank you. So you mentioned the CLOs, let's go to them. Collateralized loan obligations. So as our listeners know from what we were discussing earlier, CLOs or collateralized loan obligations are backed by a diverse portfolio of corporate bank loans to non-investment grade companies. With the Fed undertaking QT and tightening financial conditions via monetary policy, bank loans, as we know, are floating rate and they're part of the market that will face headwinds in the form of higher interest costs as well as challenges to underlying businesses' operating performance. So there's some headwinds on the fundamental side there. Now that's in the loan market, you know, at a, at a very, very broad level. But if we pivot to actually CLOs, the structured credit investments we're talking about, they're generally positioned pretty well to move through this credit cycle. If you look at the, what I had alluded to before is over collateralization or what the amount by which assets exceed liabilities, that metric, which is a common one used in CLOs, um, is pretty healthy and is it's strong as it's been in the post-COVID period. The concentration in these portfolios of particularly low rated, so these are triple C rated loans that have a elevated default risk. Those concentrations are quite low right now. They're around 5%. The overall leverage loan market, it's, it's about 8%. So CLO managers have positioned portfolios to be somewhat defensive going into the cycle. Now, that's not to say all things are going to be rosy in CLOs. Ultimately, this is exposed to um, you know a, a credit sensitive part of the fixed income market and our view is that based on our macro team's forecasts on corporate default rates and earnings, what we could see as this default cycle progresses is some of the very junior tranches in the CLO structures could come under some pressure in the form of failing tests and having their interest payments cut off temporarily. And in some cases, perhaps even losing principal on an extreme, you know, on an, in some subset of the population. So we think based on our broader view of one, the initial conditions for CLOs, two, 
the range of outcomes for corporate credit and the leveraged loan market. CLOs at the investment grade part of the capital structure are a pretty defensive place to be. And it fits in with some of our up in quality trends that Steve discussed in the prior conversation. So CLOs are a good place to express that up in quality view. And on a relative value basis, even if we look at the top of the capital structure, single A's to triple A rated CLOs are offering 0.5 to 1.5% higher yields than even single A rated corporates. So there's good relative value. It's a defensive place to be. Our view is that there will be a better entry point for moving down the capital structure because the upside downside on junior CLOs is not particularly appealing in our opinion right now. So when you say 0.5 to 1.5 percentage points higher in yield than corporates, where, what level are you talking about? So it's at the single A level, it's at the 7% point, and at the AAA level, it'll be the high fives to 6% area. Great. Uh, okay, let's move on to uh, asset-backed securities, ABS. Uh, and there are a lot of subsectors in there. So uh, what are you seeing in uh, ABS? So after RMBS, ABS is one of our more favorite areas right now. This market saw a lot of issuance in 2020 and 2021. And, and when, it, when we talk about ABS, I want to be clear that we're talking about esoteric or commercial ABS. This is about a 250-ish billion dollar market out of the overall $775 billion ABS market. So the majority of the ABS market is actually consumer-related ABS. By consumer, you mean things like credit card receivables, auto loans? Correct. So you're looking outside of those categories? Correct. We're looking more at the commercial ABS sector. And this is the sector that's backed by things such as leases on aircraft or on shipping containers or leases on data centers, cell towers, um, so the more commercial asset-backed part of the asset-backed securities market. In this market, a lot of issuers came to the market in 2020 and 2021 when interest rates were very low. And as interest rates have risen, there's very little issuance on the horizon at this point. And in this market, again, it is a small, not so widely followed market, and credit spreads have been slow to retrace relative to the corporate benchmarks that they typically track. So where are we seeing opportunities right now in asset-backed securities? Now, some parts of this market have normalized more than others, so it's not a uniform story. So for example, um, whole business-related asset-backed securities have probably normalized the most. We think there's some incremental value there, but we think a lot of the juice has been squeezed out relative to liquid credit. However, when we move away from that and we look at, say, triple net lease-backed deals, data centers, container ABS in certain cases, we think that the yields offered in the market, which are generally going to be in the six to six and a half percent area for single A or triple B rated tranches and the kind of five year average maturity, we think that's still pretty appealing, especially because there's very little issuance. And if we go out to the fringy markets where there are more limited opportunities that exist in the secondary market to make more credit intensive investments, and here I'm primarily speaking about aircraft ABS which is a sector that's really gotten beat up in COVID in a manner you know, somewhat reminiscent of how residential mortgage securities got beat up in the financial crisis, these deals are still trading at low enough dollar prices that investors can earn high single-digit returns under a wide range of outcomes. So it's not a scalable trade, but that's something that at the margin, investors that have the credit depth and the familiarity can add some yield enhancement for higher risk tolerance strategies. 
And uh, you mentioned whole business. I know it's a term of art. Just give us an example of you know the type of issuer that you'll see in a whole business category. Sure. So without naming names, um, you know, an example might be a chain of you know household name type restaurants. And the way these deals work is there's you know, you drive down the street and there's franchise A, you drive further down the street and there's franchise B, and you know, you drive 10 more miles down the street and there's franchise C of that of that same operating concept. What pays the ABS deals is not the profitability of the individual franchises, it's the royalties that go back to the sponsor, the sponsoring company and the concept. So the, the royalties come out at the top of the income statement of the franchise. And so they're somewhat muted from day-to-day volatility, whether it's from labor costs or input costs, et cetera. So they're not completely rigid, but they're much more insulated. So it's a way to monetize a pretty predictable stream of cash flows and borrow against it in a structured form, which is a common theme in a lot of areas of structured credit. But let's talk for a minute about the Fed and its aggressive pace of rate hikes. Most of these securities that you're buying are floating rate. So you know, how is the Fed's tightening playing into your outlook for structured credit? And if you think more broadly about what the Fed is doing, are you seeing the effects of quantitative tightening affecting anything in your market? Sure. That's a very big question, Jay. And, and, and it's big because it's affecting so many markets, but it's also big because it's affecting so many dimensions of structured credit. So I would respond to you in, in sort of two veins. One is fundamentals and the other is markets. So on the fundamental side, quantitative tightening and monetary tightening in general, let's say, um, and the knock-on effects of the economy on the fundamental side are coming into play in a lot of sectors in terms of reducing aggregate demand. So whether it's the restaurant concepts we're talking about, or if it's CapEx to build a new data center that a company's thinking about, all of those things are seeing a cold blanket thrown on them to some degree or the other. If you get to the residential sector, if the Fed overshoots their target and induces elevated unemployment would affect things like housing and residential mortgage credit. Now, the second part of this is in terms of financial markets, and I think this is also where it's pretty interesting. And and what we see are two things. One is the almost tautological conclusion that if you reduce the supply of capital in the system, credit spreads and the price of risk needs to go up. Credit spreads are elevated relative to the intrinsic risks, and part of that is just a function of quantitative tightening. I mean, it's a natural extension quantitative easing. If we turn back the clock, at the portfolio balance effect, flow through over time and compress the spread of risky assets relative to less risky assets. And now we're seeing the opposite play out in a very slow and uneven way. So that's sort of the obvious knock-on effect that I think is going on right now. Then the second one, which is a little bit more intrinsic to ABS and investors that are not involved in this market day-to-day may not be aware of, is like the example I gave in commercial real estate where properties need to refinance, say, every 10 years. And now that interest rates are higher, that becomes more challenging and it creates haves and have-nots. Similarly, on, in the ABS market, um, there are a number of deals that do require refinancing every five, seven, or 10 years. And with higher rates, the difficulty around refinancing some of these deals increases. And we have to think about how to price those risks. So the jargon in the industry is these are related to anticipated repayment date structures. So ERD or ERD, expected repayment date structures, they create a refinancing risk on certain deals that are maybe more highly levered, that don't have that inflation indexing component that I spoke about. Um, and, and that's something we're very aware of and, and sort of 
um, on the lookout for and or pricing to the extent we think that's the appropriate way to approach it. So just to re-ask the question in a slightly different way, in an environment in which the Fed is uh, operating as a, you know, a tighter monetary policy regime, how would you expect structured credit to perform? I think the performance is these deals are structured to have fairly low sensitivity to a lot of the economic inputs that I described. That's not to say there's no sensitivity. There will be some. Um, but I, I think the biggest impact on structured credit is on the price of risk. It's really more on the market side than on the fundamental side. So, you know, at this point, we don't see a lot of fragility in a lot of the sectors I'm talking about. So even as aggregate demand cools, um, whether that's from the consumer side, uh, whether that's in terms of labor market, it's not something that these deals are structured on a knife edge where a modest cycle deterioration is going to adversely change that the investment thesis. It's something we think about when we look at deals up front is how these assets will cycle and what that means, both in terms of long-term principal recovery as well as refinanceability. So I think the impact, Jay, is really more on the level of spreads. And so you know, when I talk about some of these sectors being attractive because of their relative yields, we definitely temper our view on what the price appreciation potential there would be from spread convergence to more liquid credit. We think it's probably more in the camp of excess income and a potential to move up in quality relative to corporates than a outright um, expectation of price appreciation and spread normalization in the near term. Well, Karthik, this has been a, a terrific. Thank you for explaining all this. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Sure. We don't always get to talk about structured credit, so I think the opportunity to get into details, where else can you hear about convexity and ARDs all in on one place along with Fed policy, right? But um, I appreciate all of our listeners' time and tuning in. And also for our clients and folks that have entrusted us with their capital, uh, we obviously thank you for your business and support and belief in us and, and look forward to continuing to be good stewards of your capital. Well, thank you again, Karthik. I hope you'll come back and visit with us again soon and give us another update. Thanks, Jay. My thanks also to Matt Bush. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for Karthik or Matt or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com and we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Structured credit, including asset-backed securities or ABS, mortgage-backed securities and CLOs are complex investments and not suitable for all investors. Investors in structured credit generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some structured credit investments may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile and they're subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risks to investing in loans directly, including credit risk, interest rate risk, counterparty risk and prepayment risk. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. 
this material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC.